1: New season out on Spotify soon. The young librarian dug furiously through the wooden crates, tossing aside books and manuscripts as he searched.
2: It was the midst of World War II, and the young man had undertaken a reckless mission to smuggle some of the greatest works of German literature and music out of Berlin.
1: He finally found the manuscript he was looking for, an old musical score bound in cracked leather. Its once ornate lettering now faded by time and neglect.
2: He stuffed the book under his coat and ran to the open door of the train car, trees whipped by, illuminated by the glow of the bomb blasts. Wrapping the score tightly in his jacket, he stepped back, readied himself, and jumped out into the cold.
1: The librarian regained his footing on the rocky ground and made a mad dash for the trees, arms wrapped tightly around his prize.
2: The manuscript the unnamed librarian worked so hard to save was the only existing copy of the Brandenburg Concertos, an obscure piece of music by a German composer named Johann Sebastian Bach.
1: Though he saw success and acclaim during his lifetime, Bach never lived to see his fame spread beyond the borders of his native Germany.
2: But, by the turn of the 20th century, a widespread rediscovery had led to a global obsession with the man's complex and extensive library of music.
1: Today, the Brandenburg Concertos are recognized as some of the best and most beautiful compositions ever written, and Bach is seen as one of the greatest composers to have ever lived.
2: Hi, I'm Vanessa Richardson.
1: And I'm Carter Roy. Welcome to Historical Figures, a ParCast original. Every other Wednesday, we discuss a different person's lasting historical impact, unique personality, and impression on the world around them.
2: Our audio biographies cover big lives, but we like to focus on little-known facts. Today we're discussing the life of the great Baroque composer Johann Sebastian Bach. Over the course of his life, Bach wrote some of the most beautiful music the world has ever heard. He experimented with musical form, gaining a reputation as an incredibly talented and equally hard-headed genius. You've probably heard this song before. It's a prelude from Bach's The Well-Tempered Clavier, a collection of preludes and fugues in the 24 major and minor keys meant to be used as an exercise book for students. For reference, the clavier refers to a family of musical instruments with keys, including harpsichords, pianos, and even today's electric keyboards.
1: If you've ever taken piano lessons, you probably have a love-hate relationship with this book.
2: For centuries, piano students have painstakingly plucked out the same notes, striving for the level of perfection the beautiful piece demands. And Bach, a man who rarely held his students in high regard, likely wouldn't have it any other way. Beyond just being a musical textbook— The well-tempered clavier is also one of the most important works in the history of classical music.
1: So no pressure on that fifth grader playing it for their recital?
2: Bach was part of what some call the three Bs of classical music, the other two Bs being Ludwig van Beethoven and Johannes Brahms. Conductor Hans von Bülow referred to them as Bach the Father, Beethoven the Son, and Brahms the Holy Ghost of Music.
1: And Father is a very good name for Bach. During his life, Bach wrote some of the most impressive, beautiful pieces of music ever heard by the human ear.
2: But many audiences from Bach's time thought his music was extremely old-fashioned and overdone.
1: In fact, in the century after his death... Bach was better known for his reputation as a teacher and organ virtuoso than his actual compositions.
2: During his lifetime, Bach never strayed beyond northern Germany. As a result, his reputation failed to spread much further beyond Germany's borders for decades after his death.
1: Bach only became globally famous 80 years after his death when composer Felix Mendelssohn performed Bach's St. Matthew Passion in 1829.
2: A note on context before we begin in earnest. The vast majority of Johann Sebastian Bach's work was religious music for the Lutheran Church. While he wrote a great number of secular pieces, many of his compositions were written while he was the organist or musical director of various churches and, as such, have biblical themes.
1: Johann Sebastian Bach was born into a musical household. His father, uncles, brothers, and cousins, many of whom shared his first name of Johann, were all skilled musicians. At any given time, you might hear Johann Ambrosius, the town piper of Eisenach, practicing his music in the attic for an upcoming celebratory performance, Other times, you could often hear one of the younger Bachs painstakingly practicing scales on pipe and clavier and piano in various corners of the stout wooden house.
2: Eisenach, a small town in central Germany, nestled at the northern edge of the Thuringian forest, was already 600 years old by the time Johann Sebastian Bach came squalling into the world on March 31, 1685.
1: The Bachs were the preeminent musicians in Eisenach and their house on the fleischer Road was a bustling one. As Bach grew, he was exposed to an ever-changing cast of players, including family members, musical apprentices, and public officers that
2: frequently came through the Bach house door. His father's twin brother, Christoph, was a prolific keyboard virtuoso, well known for his fantastic improvisations on organ and harpsichord. He was the organist for the nearby town of Arnstadt, and most excitingly to Bach, was a great composer.
1: Meanwhile, his father Ambrosius was an accomplished piper and directed many of the public music performances in Eisenach.
2: It was Ambrosius who taught Bach the violin and the basics of music theory sometime between 1689 and 1695, before the boy was even 10 years old, and his uncle Christoph introduced him to the organ during this same period. Bach showed in those early years that he had a knack for the organ, and it would become his preferred instrument for writing music.
1: Bach's happy childhood was cut short when he was nine. His mother, Elizabeth, died in 1694 due to an unspecified illness. His father, Ambrosius, remarried in late 1694, but died just three months later in February of 1695.
2: With no figurehead to hold the family together, the Bach children were scattered across Germany to their various relatives.
1: Johann Sebastian Bach moved in with his older brother, who was, confusingly, named Johann Christoph.
2: Johann Christoph was the organist at St. Michael's Church in Ordruf, another town about 30 miles away from Eisenach. If Bach's time with his uncle Christoph piqued his interest in the organ, his time living with his brother Christoph truly ignited his passion for the instrument.
1: At that time, the organ at St. Michael's was in a horrible state of disrepair and was almost unplayable. Christoph sought to fix the instrument as part of his duties as organist.
2: Bach spent many long hours of his pre-teen years in Ordruff helping his brother repair the organ, sometimes literally crawling inside the giant instrument to replace a hammer or fix a faulty joint.
1: In return for Bach's help, Christoph introduced him to the composers that would inspire him for years to come. Like an older sibling sharing his record collection, Christoph took it upon himself to share his musical taste with Bach.
2: For the first time, Bach was reading and playing the music of great modern composers. Christophe introduced him to the music of his mentor, Johann Pachelbel, whose canon in D is probably familiar to everyone who's ever attended a high school graduation.
1: Christophe also widened Bach's worldview, introducing him to the French composer Jean-Baptiste Lully and Louis Marchand, North German composers and Italian clavierist Girolamo Frescobaldi.
2: The young Bach was captivated by this beautiful, intricate music. In his time living with his brother, he studied, performed, and copied the works of these great composers with an insatiable hunger to understand them.
1: This sometimes got him into trouble. A famous story tells of how an adolescent Johann Sebastian snuck into his brother's study to copy a particular score of Johann Pachelbel.
2: Christoph had forbidden the young boy to do so, fearing he would damage the rare and valuable score or waste sheets of expensive ledger paper.
1: Each night, Bach waited until the last candle in the house was cold before rising from his bed and creeping downstairs to his brother's study. There, after carefully removing the score from his brother's library, he would lay it on the desk and painstakingly copy the notes onto blank paper.
2: He did all of this only by the pale light of the moon through the study window, knowing an orange candle flame could give him away in the night.
1: Despite all his precautions, Bach was finally caught by his brother after six months of sneaking around. Christoph promptly confiscated both the original score and Bach's copy.
2: He probably also kept the ledger paper locked up after that.
1: Probably. But Bach had been bitten by the bug. And his passion for music and composition only grew further.
2: We'll see the beginning of Bach's composing work after this.
0: This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all. But it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. Now back to the story.
2: Of course, Johann Sebastian Bach is famous for his greatest love, his music. But what many don't know is that Bach had another passion almost as great as the first, engaging in petty arguments.
1: Bach was a genius, a brilliant composer, and an artist of the highest degree. He was also a cantankerous man who both took offense exceedingly easily and who managed to alienate people wherever he went.
2: It all started in 1700 when he left Christoph's house at age 15.
1: By that year, Christoph and his wife had two children with a third on the way.
2: Bach left the house in Ordruf and went to school at Luneburg, far to the north, where he sang very briefly in the choir and continued his studies in music. Bach had originally received a scholarship to sing in the choir and for church services in return for room and board at the school. But the onset of puberty lowered his voice and forced him out of the choir— He shifted to playing instruments in the orchestra in return for lodging at the school.
1: After he graduated, he quickly secured work as a musician, impressing audiences with his keyboard playing so much that by 1703, he was offered the role of organist at the new church
2: in Arnstadt. The job was a cushy one. Bach had relatively light duties, good pay, and a beautiful new organ to compose upon. However, he soon found fault with his new position.
1: Bach's issue wasn't with the church itself, but with the people he had to interact with there.
2: As part of his duties, Bach was required to oversee the choir. He took offense because this particular duty took up valuable time he needed for composing music.
1: Well, not only that, he consistently clashed with the choir. They complained that his music was too complex, whereas he complained that they weren't talented enough to sing it.
2: Johann Adolf Scheibe, a composer and contemporary of Bach, famously said of his music... Since he judges according to his own fingers, his pieces are extremely difficult to play, for he demands that singers and instrumentalists should be able to do with their throats and instruments whatever he can play on the keyboard. But this is impossible.
1: The choir at Arnstadt wasn't just composed of singers, it was a large group of vocalists and musicians. By 1705, the 20-year-old Bach found it difficult and draining to deal with the choir's students, many of whom were older than him and wouldn't follow his commands.
2: Apparently, this led to an incident in which he called the musician named Geiersbach a zippel-fagottist in the middle of rehearsal, which has been translated as a weak bassoonist, a greenhorn bassoonist, a nanny-goat bassoonist, and our personal favorite, a weenie bassoonist.
1: Whatever the translation, Bach wouldn't get away with hurling insults easily. On August 4th, 1705, Bach was walking home with his cousin, Maria Barbara. While crossing the town square, they came upon a group of rowdy students coming back from a christening feast.
2: Geiersbach was among the group. He approached Bach while brandishing a large stick and asked him why he had insulted his skills with the bassoon.
1: Bach argued back claiming that even if he had insulted Geyersbach, there was no way for the man to prove it. It's not quite apparent what Bach meant by this. As the story goes, he had insulted Geyersbach in front of the entire choir. Geyersbach was enraged by Bach's flippant attitude.
2: Geyersbach attacked Bach with the stick, but Bach was ready.
1: He had taken to wearing a sword on his person— Bach had apparently grown wary of his antagonistic relationship with his students and had begun carrying the weapon in case he needed it for self
2: defense. Now was the moment, and he drew the sword. Luckily, the other students pulled the men apart before either was seriously injured. Though he had barely escaped a beating, Bach was still angry.
1: He complained to the consistory, the regulatory body of church officials that ran the parish. When Bach admitted that he had, in fact, insulted Geiersbach's bassoon-playing abilities, they reprimanded him, ordered him to apologize, and told him to try harder to get along with the students.
2: No one on the disciplinary board thought to raise the issue of Bach carrying a sword to defend against attacks by his students. Maybe they were scared of him as well. Enraged by the consistory's response, Bach demanded four weeks leave from the church— The leave was ostensibly for Bach to travel to the city of Lübeck, where he wanted to hear the great organist and composer Dietrich Buxtehude play.
1: His four-week leave ended up lasting four months.
2: Alone, Bach walked the 280 miles from Arnstadt to Lübeck in November 1705, no doubt very happy that each footfall was taking him away from his woes at the new church. He returned the same way, walking the 280 miles back to Arnstadt and arriving in February 1706.
1: No one quite knows what Bach was up to during his few months in Lübeck. It certainly wasn't only listening to Buchstahuda. The composer had finished his performances by December 20th, 1705. Bach was most likely looking for a new job.
2: In fact, he left Arnstadt and the Troublesome Choir behind in 1707 for a better paying position at the Blasius Church in Mulhausen. As part of his job application, he was required to submit an Easter cantata, which is evidence that he was already beginning to be known for his compositions.
1: A cantata is a vocal composition with instrumental accompaniment. They often involve a choir and are performed in several movements.
2: Many Baroque composers, including Bach, composed great cycles of 72 cantatas, meant for performance during 72 holy occasions, Sundays, and feast days throughout the year in the Lutheran Church.
1: 1707 was also notable for the young Bach when, at 22 years old, he married his first wife, his cousin Maria Barbara. Bach and Maria would have seven children together, two of whom became composers and musicians as well.
2: But just as he had in Arnstadt, Bach found opposition to his music. The congregation found it too complex and grandiose, as opposed to the more melodic music that was gaining popularity at the time.
1: By 1708, he moved again, this time to the city of Weimar. The Duke of Weimar, Wilhelm Ernst, hired Bach as a court organist and musician.
2: It was during this period of his life that Bach started composing in earnest. As he buried himself into his musical passion, he started to develop his unique and groundbreaking approach to writing music, an approach evident in Toccata and Fugue in D minor. Whether it's accompanying the Phantom of the Opera silently creeping across the screen or being played by the mysterious Captain Nemo deep under the ocean— Bach's Toccata and Fugue in D minor has been made famous by its cinematic associations with horror.
1: It's not known when Bach wrote the piece, and some musical scholars question whether he wrote it at all. But looking back to Bach's Weimar days, you can see how he honed his craft, composing different types of music, learning the skills that would enable him to write such an astounding work of music.
2: We've already heard a few Bach cantatas, of which he wrote hundreds.
1: Bach composed for solo organ and other keyboard instruments, a cappella and choral music, and orchestral music. Much of his orchestral and chamber music was written for solo instruments, like his violin concertos and cello suites, or duos or small ensembles of musicians.
2: Bach, cantankerous as he was, was actually a musical innovator.
1: Bach commonly wrote four-part harmonies, which were popular at the time. But where many sought to make pleasant chords, Bach enjoyed experimenting, often adding surprising dissonant chords.
2: He also wrote pieces with modulations, meaning that he would change the key throughout the piece. Many instruments in the Baroque period were incapable of changing keys without halting the music and retuning. One of Bach's passion projects throughout his life was tinkering with and tempering keyboards to allow for a greater range of modulation within a piece without having to stop and retune.
1: Nevertheless, Bach incorporated modulation into his compositions, getting at least one complaint that he was confusing the singing with his work while he was in Arnstadt.
2: Much like in his dealings with church authorities, Bach seemed to take delight in upsetting both the status quo and fellow musicians with his compositions.
1: He wrote very specific ornamentation in his music, denoting exactly where singers and musicians should trill, slide, or otherwise add a flourish.
2: Ornamentation was usually a product of improvisation and up to the performer, so this undoubtedly annoyed some musicians who felt Bach was being too controlling.
1: Before we move on from Bach's musical style, we would be remiss in not mentioning counterpoint.
2: Counterpoint was a popular style that characterized Baroque music. In simple terms, counterpoint is a style of music in which two or more musical parts are played independently, but are interdependent on each other within the music.
1: One example is a round, like Row, Row, Row Your Boat.
2: Each different part of Row, Row, Row Your Boat is an independent melody. However, when they're staggered at different times and melded together, it creates a more complex piece of interdependent music.
1: From this principle, we get counterpoint. From Row, Row, Row Your Boat, we get Toccata and Fugue in D minor. Along with the music techniques we already mentioned, Bach's greatest musical influence was famed Italian composer and virtuoso violinist Antonio Vivaldi.
2: Bach transcribed nine of Vivaldi's concertos during his life. This undertaking is seen by many scholars as the most important period in the development of Bach's own personal musical style.
1: Prior to the Vivaldi transcriptions, Bach saw music as an intellectual pursuit, piecing complicated musical movements together to test the limits of the form. As we've mentioned, Bach was often derided by his audiences and previous employers for making his music too complex.
2: Vivaldi, on the other hand, focused on musicality. In simple terms, he wanted to write music that, first and foremost, sounded beautiful.
1: Bach's work on the transcriptions led him to blend the two styles, adding more emotional musical elements to his pieces while continuing to use complicated counterpoint. This resulted in complex but beautiful-sounding pieces of music, which required both skill and emotion.
2: We'll get back to Bach's journey through the exalted musical halls of Germany in just a moment.
1: Now back to the story.
2: From 1708 to 1717, Johann Sebastian Bach stayed at the court of Weimar, writing music for the Duke. During this time, he also managed to produce both the 24 preludes and fugues of his incredible work, The Well-Tempered Clavier, as well as six children, four of whom survived infancy.
1: Again, as was the case in Arnstadt, Bach was expected to take on responsibilities that were not in his job description, including directing a choir.
2: Instead of arguing, however, Bach put his head down and did what was asked of him. He believed that his hard work would pay off with a promotion to the high-paying and prestigious position of Kapellmeister or music director.
1: His hopes were dashed in 1717, when that position was granted to the previous Kapellmeister's son.
2: Bach was furious. When an invitation arrived from his colleague, Jean-Baptiste Volumier, to hear a musician play in Dresden, Germany, Bach left immediately in a huff.
1: Jean-Baptiste had his own agenda, however. He was the concertmaster to King Augustus of Saxony and was lauded for his mastery of the French musical style.
2: But at the time, a newcomer to Dresden had stolen the king's attention. Louis Marchand, the top harpsichordist in France, was invited to play before the king. Delighted by the man's music, the king instantly offered him a position in the court, much to Jean-Baptiste's chagrin.
1: Jean-Baptiste was upset, Not only had the young upstart stolen his position, Marchand was also reportedly vain, self-centered, and had an ego the size of Germany.
2: Jean-Baptiste wanted Bach to join him in Dresden to challenge Marchand to see who was the better musician. Always a lover of a good feud, Bach agreed to help his friend.
1: Jean-Baptiste brought Bach to hear Marchand play at the court. Bach, who even then had a reputation among the musical community in Germany, kept his face hidden throughout the concert.
2: The second Marchand played his final note, Bach stepped forward, revealed himself, and challenged Marchand to a piano duel.
1: Bach wrote out the terms of the duel in a letter. They would each put together a series of musical challenges for the other, and the best musician would win. Marchand accepted the terms.
2: What was first conceived as a small prank soon grew to royal proportions. The king got wind of the challenge and agreed to attend and pay the winner 500 thalers, a substantial sum at the time. Tollers were silver coins, and thus it's difficult to provide an exact conversion to today's German marks. But we do know that in that time period, 500 thalers would equal to a sum of at least five figures in today's currency.
1: On the day of the duel, an audience of the Saxony elite, buzzing with excitement, assembled in the palace of the king's senior minister, General von Fleming.
2: Bach arrived, ready to play, only to find out that Marchand was nowhere to be found.
1: A messenger was dispatched to track down Marchand, and returned a short while later to report that the great Marchand had fled back to Paris.
2: Marchand had apparently not known who Bach was when he accepted the challenge. He'd discovered Bach's reputation just hours before the duel, and had chosen to flee rather than face the humiliation of losing to Johann Sebastian Bach.
1: The whole thing turned out rather well for Bach. Rather than participating in a duel, he ended up performing an impromptu recital in front of the most powerful men and women in Saxony.
2: When Bach returned from this adventure in Dresden to the court at Weimar, it was with a noticeable spring in his step. While he was gone, Ernst, the duke's nephew and political rival, had secured Bach a position as Kapellmeister to the court of Prince Leopold of Kuten.
1: Emboldened by how well everything had gone in Dresden, Bach tendered his resignation and demanded the duke release him from service. In response to this slight, the duke had Bach thrown in jail.
2: But Bach seemed to take it all in stride. He spent his 30 days in the Weimar jail writing out preludes for the organ.
1: The Duke finally agreed to release Bach from his contract, though he made a point to warn him that he would not be providing a recommendation to whomever hired Bach next. Luckily, Bach already had a job and was now free to leave Weimar's jail for Kooten.
2: In 1717, the court of Prince Leopold was a great place for musicians. The 23-year-old prince was a music lover and a musician himself.
1: Bach's musical output increased exponentially from 1717 to 1723 while he was in the prince's employ.
2: The prince, a Calvinist, allowed Bach the opportunity to explore secular music, including dance music, which would go on to influence his later compositions.
1: During his time in Kooten, Bach composed the famous Brandenburg Concertos, which an unnamed librarian would save from destruction over 200 years later.
2: Everything seemed to be finally going Bach's way. He had an employer who not only let him do what he wanted, but paid him well for it.
1: Best of all, there was no choir of incompetent students that Bach was expected to teach. He could devote all of his time to his own music.
2: Over the next few years, Bach and the prince took a number of trips to explore the hot musical destinations of Europe. In 1720, they ventured to Carlsbad, a spa town just across the border from Germany in the modern-day Czech Republic. But Bach returned to a shocking piece of news. While they were gone, his loving wife Maria Barbara had died at only 36 years old.
1: After a brief grieving period... Bach found himself in a whirlwind romance with a court singer named Anna Magdalena. They were married on December 3, 1721. Bach was 36 and Anna Magdalena was just 20.
2: Anna contributed to Bach's musical career during their time together. She continued singing and acted as a copyist for Bach's music. They would have 13 children, many of whom became musicians and composers themselves.
1: Just a week after Bach and Anna Magdalena wed, Prince Leopold married his own cousin, Frederica Henrietta, on December 11, 1721. Frederica didn't care for music and drew her new husband's attention away from his former mate and favorite composer. Bach ultimately departed from Coutain in 1723, when he was appointed the cantor of the Thomas Schule and Thomas Kirscher in Leipzig.
2: Bach spent the next 27 years in Leipzig, composing furiously. In fact, it was said that throughout the 1720s, he wrote at the furious pace of one cantata a week.
1: Even more astounding than Bach's creative output is how little we have left of it. Out of more than 300 cantatas which Bach composed in Leipzig, over 100 have been lost forever.
2: When Bach wasn't composing, he had plenty of responsibilities to keep him busy. Of the 20 children he had fathered with his two wives, 10 survived past their infancy. Bach delighted in teaching his children in the ways of music, just as his own father had done for him.
1: As the cantor, he controlled the music program for the four principal Leipzig churches, the Tomas Kirsche, the Nikolai Kirsche, the Neue Kirchen, and the Petri Kirche. He was also appointed head of the Thomas Schule, a boarding school for choral singers that sang in the Leipzig churches.
2: Just like he had many times before, it wasn't long before Bach clashed with the authorities of the church and the school.
1: It came down to an argument over quality and talent. Bach thought he was better than the position of Cantor, and the bureaucracy of the church leaders was only holding him back. The leaders thought he was a mediocre talent and full of himself.
2: Bach was sick of being bogged down by teaching classes and rehearsing with the chorus. What he wanted most was more time to make his own music.
1: It was in the midst of these disputes that Bach took over the directorship of the Collegium Musicum in 1729. This musical society provided most of the public music for Leipzig. While holding this role, along with his position as cantor and head of the Thomas Schule, Bach controlled almost all the music in Leipzig.
2: And there, Bach found his artistic space. He much preferred it to his official duties and would often skip the lessons he was supposed to be teaching in favor of composing for or performing with the musicum.
1: One of his most notorious pieces from the time is popularly called the Coffee Cantata, inspired by Bach's love of the bitter drink. Schweikstile plaudert nicht, or... Be Still, Stop Chattering, was first performed in 1735 at Zimmermann's Coffeehouse in Leipzig. The song tells the story of a coffee-loving woman who rebels against her father who wants her to lower her caffeine consumption.
2: In the song, the female protagonist agrees to drink much less. It resolves when she agrees to her father's terms that she drink only three cups of coffee per day.
1: Bach himself knew quite a bit about caffeine— It was rumored he drank up to 30 cups of coffee a day. Clearly, Bach was distracted. The Leipzig Church Musicum leaders even considered reducing Bach's salary due to his habit of dropping singing students and leaving for long periods without notice. In their official reprimand, one of Bach's employers wrote, "...the cantor is incorrigible."
2: However, they kept him on, and the Leipzig years were incredibly fruitful for Bach. In
1: 1741, when Bach was 56, he wrote an aria and 30 variations for the harpsichord, popularly known as the Goldberg Variations.
2: If you've ever felt sleepy listening to classical music, you're not alone. The Goldberg Variations were supposedly written as a lullaby. As the
1: story goes, Bach was commissioned to write it by Count Kaiserling, a Russian diplomat who lived in Germany. The Count asked Bach to compose a sweet, lovely collection of music to help him with his insomnia. They were performed by a virtuoso organist and harpsichordist that lived in the Count's house, Johann Gottlieb Goldberg. Goldberg would play until the Count fell asleep. In recent years, this story has come up against some pushback. While it is very possible that Goldberg played the pieces at some point, he was only 14 in 1741 when they are said to be published and probably was not a court musician for the Count at the time. Whether true or not, the name Goldberg
2: stuck. By the late 1740s, Bach's health began to fail his once superhuman composition output began to wane, and he was losing his eyesight.
1: While Bach wasn't diagnosed in his lifetime, later historians believe the cause was diabetes. It not only weakened Bach's eyesight, but was also suspected to cause degenerative brain disease. Scholars of Bach's life and work suspect this after reviewing the dramatic changes in Bach's handwriting in his scores and letters beginning in 1748.
2: In March 1750, at age 65, Bach's eyes had gotten so bad that he decided to undergo eye surgery. Even normally, surgery in the mid-1700s was no picnic. But in Bach's case, it would prove fatal.
1: John Taylor presented himself in Leipzig as a traveling surgeon, going from city to city to perform operations.
2: In reality, he was a shameless con man, robbing people of their money before horribly maiming or killing them with his cures. He would perform two surgeries on Bach, first in March 1750 and then a follow-up in April.
1: The operation that Taylor gave Bach was barbaric. The procedure, called couching, involved shoving a cataract deep into the eye with a blunt instrument
2: That sounds unbelievably painful.
1: Uh, Not only that, it was ineffective. To aid recovery, Taylor gave Bach eye drops that were supposed to help with healing. These drops were comprised of pigeon blood, pulverized sugar, and
0: mercury.
2: Not surprisingly, they only made Bach's eyes worse. Although he dutifully applied the drops after the first surgery in March and the second in April, his health rapidly declined.
1: Johann Sebastian Bach died in Leipzig due to complications from his botched eye surgeries on July 28, 1750. He was 65 years old.
2: Jonathan Taylor was never caught or punished for his crimes and would go on to blind possibly hundreds of people. In 1758, he even operated on Bach's contemporary, George Friedrich Handel, who he also blinded.
1: Bach was famous in Germany at the time of his death, and regarded as a brilliant and influential composer. However, after his death, his reputation put more focus on his prowess as an organist. Many of his beautiful works were lost or forgotten, and only a portion was saved by Bach's son Carl Philipp Emanuel's work collecting them.
2: It would be nearly a century after his death that Bach's work began to circulate among the European Symphony Circuit.
1: By the early 1900s, Bach was one of the most popular and most beloved composers in the world, and his work is still studied and performed today.
2: Now, almost 300 years after his life, Bach's tireless, complex work lives on in the beautiful music that he spent his life perfecting.
1: Thanks for tuning in to Historical Figures. We will be back in two weeks with a new episode.
2: You can find all previous episodes of Historical Figures, as well as all of ParCast's other shows, on Spotify and anywhere else you listen to podcasts.
1: Several of you have asked how to help us. If you enjoy the show, the best way to help is to leave a five-star review.
2: And don't forget to follow us on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and Twitter at ParCast Network. We'll see you next time. Historical Figures was created by Max Cutler. It is a production of Cutler Media and is part of the ParCast Network. It's produced by Max and Ron Cutler, sound design by David Turk, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro and Paul Liebeskind. Additional production assistance by Maggie Admire and Carly Madden. Historical Figures is written by Molly Quinlan and stars Vanessa Richardson and Carter Roy.